Chapter 3, Part A of The Wealth of Nations, Book 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 5, Chapter 3, Part A of Public Debts. In that rude state of society which precedes the extension of commerce and the improvements of manufactures, when those expensive luxuries which commerce and manufactures can alone introduce are altogether unknown, the person who possesses a large revenue, I have endeavored to show in the third book of this inquiry, can spend or enjoy that revenue in no other way than by maintaining nearly as many people as it can maintain. A large revenue may at all times be said to consist in the command of a large quantity of the necessaries of life. In that rude state of things, it is commonly paid in a large quantity of those necessaries, in the materials of plain food and coarse clothing, in corn and cattle, in wool and raw hides. When neither commerce nor manufactures furnish anything for which the owner can exchange the greater part of those materials, which are over and above his own consumption, he can do nothing with the surplus, but feed and clothe nearly as many people as it will feed and clothe. A hospitality in which there is no luxury, and a liberality in which there is no ostentation, occasion, in this situation of things, the principal expenses of the rich and the great. But these, I have likewise endeavored to show in the same book, are expenses by which people are not very apt to ruin themselves. There is not, perhaps, any selfish pleasure so frivolous, of which the pursuit has not sometimes ruined even sensible men. A passion for cockfighting has ruined many. But the instances, I believe, are not very numerous, of people who have been ruined by a hospitality or liberality of this kind, though the hospitality of luxury and the liberality of ostentation have ruined many. Among our feudal ancestors, the long time during which estates used to continue in the same family, sufficiently demonstrates the general disposition of people to live within their income. Though the rustic hospitality, constantly exercised by the great landholders, may not, to us in the present times, seem consistent with that order which we are apt to consider as inseparably connected with good economy, yet we must certainly allow them to have been at least so far frugal as not commonly to have spent their whole income. A part of their wool and raw hides, they had generally an opportunity of selling for money. Some part of this money, perhaps, they spent in purchasing the few objects of vanity and luxury, with which the circumstances of the times could furnish them, but some part of it they seem commonly to have hoarded. They could not well, indeed, do anything else but hoard whatever money they saved. To trade was disgraceful to a gentleman, and to lend money at interest, which at that time was considered as usury and prohibited by law, would have been still more so. In those times of violence and disorder, besides, it was convenient to have a hoard of money at hand, that in case they should be driven from their own home, they might have something of known value to carry with them to some place of safety. The same violence which made it convenient to hoard, made it equally convenient to conceal the hoard. The frequency of treasure trove, or of treasure found, of which no owner was known, sufficiently demonstrates the frequency, in those times, both of hoarding and of concealing the hoard. Treasure trove was then considered as an important branch of the revenue of the sovereign. All the treasure trove of the kingdom would scarce, perhaps, in the present times, make an important branch of the revenue of a private gentleman of good estate. The same disposition, to save and to hoard, 
prevailed in the sovereign as well as in the subjects. Among nations, to whom commerce and manufacture are little known, the sovereign, it has already been observed in the fourth book, is in a situation which naturally disposes him to the parsimony requisite for accumulation. In that situation, the expense, even of a sovereign, cannot be directed by that vanity which delights in the gaudy finery of a court. The ignorance of the times affords but few of the trinkets in which that finery consists. Standing armies are not then necessary, so that the expense, even of a sovereign, like that of any other great lord, can be employed in scarce anything but bounty to his tenants, and hospitality to his retainers. But bounty and hospitality very seldom lead to extravagance, though vanity almost always does. All the ancient sovereigns of Europe, accordingly, it has already been observed, had treasures. Every Tartar chief in the present times is said to have one. In a commercial country, abounding with every sort of expensive luxury, the sovereign, in the same manner as almost all the great proprietors in his dominions, naturally spends a great part of his revenue in purchasing those luxuries. His own, and the neighboring countries, supply him abundantly with all the costly trinkets which compose the splendid, but insignificant, pageantry of a court. For the sake of an inferior pageantry of the same kind, his nobles dismiss their retainers, make their tenants independent, and become gradually themselves as insignificant as the greater part of the wealthy burghers in his dominions. The same frivolous passions which influence their conduct influence his. How can it be supposed that he should be the only rich man in his dominions who is insensible to pleasures of this kind? If he does not, what he is very likely to do, spend upon those pleasures so great a part of his revenue as to debilitate very much the defensive power of the state, it cannot well be expected that he should not spend upon them all that part of it which is over and above what is necessary for supporting that defensive power. His ordinary expense becomes equal to his ordinary revenue, and it is well if it does not frequently exceed it. The amassing of treasure can no longer be expected, and when extraordinary exigencies require extraordinary expenses, he must necessarily call upon his subjects for an extraordinary aid. The present and the late king of Prussia are the only great princes of Europe who, since the death of Henry the Fourth of France in 1610, are supposed to have amassed any considerable treasure. The parsimony which leads to accumulation has become almost as rare in republican as in monarchical governments. The Italian republics, the United Provinces of the Netherlands, are all in debt. The canton of Bern is the single republic in Europe which has amassed any considerable treasure. The other Swiss republics have not. The taste for some sort of pageantry, for splendid buildings at least, and other public ornaments, frequently prevails as much in the apparently sober senate house of a little republic as in the dissipated court of the greatest king. The want of parsimony in time of peace imposes the necessity of contracting debt in time of war. When war comes, there is no money in the treasury, but what is necessary for carrying on the ordinary expense of the peace establishment. In war, an establishment of three or four times that expense becomes necessary for the defense of the state, and, consequently, a revenue three or four times greater than the peace revenue. Supposing that the sovereign should have, what he scarce ever has, the immediate means of augmenting his revenue in proportion to the augmentation of his expense, 
yet still the produce of the taxes, from which this increase of revenue must be drawn, will not begin to come into the treasury till perhaps ten or twelve months after they are imposed. But the moment in which war begins, or rather the moment in which it appears likely to begin, the army must be augmented, the fleet must be fitted out, the garrison towns must be put into a posture of defence. That army, that fleet, those garrison towns, must be furnished with arms, ammunition, and provisions. An immediate and great expense must be incurred in that moment of immediate danger, which will not wait for the gradual and slow returns of the new taxes. In this exigency, government can have no other resource but in borrowing. The same commercial state of society, which, by the operation of moral causes, brings government in this manner into the necessity of borrowing, produces in the subjects both an ability and an inclination to lend. If it commonly brings along with it the necessity of borrowing, it likewise brings with it the facility of doing so. A country abounding with merchants and manufacturers necessarily abounds with a set of people through whose hands, not only their own capitals, but the capitals of all those who either lend them money or trust them with goods, pass as frequently, or more frequently, than the revenue of a private man, who, without trade or business, lives upon his income, passes through his hands. The revenue of such a man can regularly pass through his hands only once in a year. But the whole amount of the capital and credit of a merchant, who deals in a trade of which the returns are very quick, may sometimes pass through his hands two, three, or four times in a year. A country abounding with merchants and manufacturers, therefore, necessarily abounds with a set of people, who have it at all times in their power to advance, if they choose to do so, a very large sum of money to government. Hence the ability in the subjects of a commercial state to lend. Commerce and manufacturers can seldom flourish long in any state which does not enjoy a regular administration of justice, in which the people do not feel themselves secure in the possession of their property, in which the faith of contracts is not supported by law, and in which the authority of the state is not supposed to be regularly employed in enforcing the payment of debts from all those who are able to pay. Commerce and manufacturers, in short, can seldom flourish in any state in which there is not a certain degree of confidence in the justice of government. The same confidence which disposes great merchants and manufacturers upon ordinary occasions to trust their property to the protection of a particular government, disposes them, upon extraordinary occasions, to trust that government with the use of their property. By lending money to government, they do not even for a moment diminish their ability to carry on their trade in manufactures. On the contrary, they commonly augment it. The necessities of the state render government, upon most occasions, willing to borrow upon terms extremely advantageous to the lender. The security which it grants to the original creditor is made transferable to any other creditor, and from the universal confidence in the justice of the state, generally sells in the market for more than was originally paid for it. The merchant or moneyed man makes money by lending money to government, and instead of diminishing, increases his trading capital. He generally considers it as a favor, therefore, when the administration admits him to a share in the first subscription for a new loan. Hence the inclination or willingness in the subjects of a commercial state to lend. The government of such a state is very apt to repose itself upon this ability and willingness of its subjects to lend it their money on extraordinary occasions 
it foresees the facility of borrowing and therefore dispenses itself from the duty of saving in a rude state of society there are no great mercantile or manufacturing capitals the individuals who hoard whatever money they can save and who conceal their hoard do so from a distrust of the justice of government from a fear that if it was known that they had a hoard and where that hoard was to be found they would quickly be plundered in such a state of things few people would be able and nobody would be willing to lend their money to government on extraordinary exigencies the sovereign feels that he must provide for such exigencies by saving because he foresees the absolute impossibility of borrowing this foresight increases still further his natural disposition to save the progress of the enormous debts which at present oppress and will in the long run probably ruin all the great nations of europe has been pretty uniform nations like private men have generally begun to borrow upon what may be called personal credit without assigning or mortgaging any particular fund for the payment of the debt and when this resource has failed them they have gone on to borrow upon assignments or mortgages of particular funds what is called the unfunded debt of great britain is contracted in the former of those two ways it consists partly in a debt which bears or is supposed to bear no interest and which resembles the debts that a private man contracts upon account and partly in a debt which bears interest and which resembles what a private man contracts upon his bill or promissory note the debts which are due either for extraordinary services or for services either not provided for or not paid at the time when they are performed part of the extraordinaries of the army navy and ordnance the arrears of subsidies to foreign princes those of seamen's wages etc usually constitute a debt of the first kind navy and exchequer bills which are issued sometimes in payment of a part of such debts and sometimes for other purposes constitute a debt of the second kind exchequer bills bearing interest from the day on which they are issued and navy bills six months after they are issued the bank of england either by voluntarily discounting those bills at their current value or by agreeing with government for certain considerations to circulate exchequer bills that is to receive them at par paying the interest which happens to be due upon them keeps up their value and facilitates their circulation and thereby frequently enables government to contract a very large debt of this kind in france where there is no bank the state bills billets d'etat have sometimes sold at sixty and seventy per cent discount during the great recoinage in king william's time when the bank of england thought proper to put a stop to its usual transactions exchequer bills and tallies are said to have sold from twenty-five to sixty per cent discount owing partly no doubt to the supposed instability of the new government established by the revolution but partly too to the want of the support of the bank of england when this resource is exhausted and it becomes necessary in order to raise money to assign or mortgage some particular branch of the public revenue for the payment of the debt government has upon different occasions done this in two different ways sometimes it has made this assignment or mortgage for a short period of time only a year or a few years for example and sometimes for perpetuity in the one case the fund was supposed sufficient to pay within the limited time both principal and interest of the money borrowed in the other it was supposed sufficient to pay the interest only or a perpetual annuity equivalent to the interest government being at liberty to redeem at any time this annuity 
upon paying back the principal sum borrowed. When money was raised in the one way, it was said to be raised by anticipation, when in the other, by perpetual funding, or, more shortly, by funding. In Great Britain, the annual land and malt taxes are regularly anticipated every year, by virtue of a borrowing clause constantly inserted into the acts which impose them. The Bank of England generally advances at an interest, which, since the Revolution, has varied from 8 to 3 percent, the sums of which those taxes are granted, and receives payment as their produce gradually comes in. If there is a deficiency, which there always is, it is provided for in the supplies of the ensuing year. The only considerable branch of the public revenue which yet remains unmortgaged is thus regularly spent before it comes in. Like an improvident spendthrift, whose pressing occasions will not allow him to wait for the regular payment of his revenue, the state is in the constant practice of borrowing of its own factors and agents, and of paying interest for the use of its own money. In the reign of King William, and during a great part of that of Queen Anne, before we had become so familiar as we are now with the practice of perpetual funding, the greater part of the new taxes were imposed but for a short period of time, for four, five, six, or seven years only, and a great part of the grants of every year consisted in loans upon anticipations of the produce of those taxes. The produce being frequently insufficient for paying, within the limited term, the principal and interest of the money borrowed, deficiencies arose, to make good which it became necessary to prolong the term. In 1697, by the 8th of William III, C. 20, the deficiencies of several taxes were charged upon what was then called the first general mortgage or fund, consisting of a prolongation to the 1st of August, 1706, of several different taxes, which would have expired within a short term, and of which the produce was accumulated into one general fund. The deficiencies charged upon this prolonged term amounted to five million one hundred and sixty thousand four hundred and fifty nine pounds fourteen shillings nine and a half pence. In seventeen o one, those duties, with some others, were still further prolonged for the like purposes till the first of August seventeen ten, and were called the second general mortgage or fund. The deficiencies charged upon it amounted to two million fifty five thousand nine hundred and ninety nine pounds seven shillings eleven and a half pence in seventeen o seven those duties were still further prolonged as a fund for new loans to the first of august seventeen twelve and were called the third general mortgage or fund the sum borrowed upon it was nine hundred and eighty three thousand two hundred and fifty four pounds eleven shillings nine and a quarter pence in 1708, those duties were all, except the old subsidy of tonnage and poundage, of which one moiety only was made a part of this fund, and a duty upon the importation of Scotch linen, which had been taken off by the Articles of Union, still further continued, as a fund for new loans, to the 1st of August, 1714, and were called the Fourth General Mortgage or Fund. The sum borrowed upon it was 925000 one hundred and seventy six pounds nine shillings two and a quarter pence in seventeen o nine those duties were all except the old subsidy of tonnage and poundage which was now left out of this fund altogether still further continued for the same purpose to the first of august seventeen sixteen and were called the fifth general mortgage or fund the sum borrowed upon it was nine hundred and twenty two thousand twenty nine pounds six shillings in 1710, 
Those duties were again prolonged to the 1st of August, 1720, and were called the sixth general mortgage or fund. The sum borrowed upon it was £1,296,552, 9 shillings, 11 and 3 quarter pence. In 1711, the same duties, which at this time were thus subject to four different anticipations, together with several others, were continued for ever, and made a fund for paying the interest of the capital of the South Sea Company, which had that year advanced to government, for paying debts and making good deficiencies, the sum of £9,177,967.15 shillings fourpence, the greatest loan which at that time had ever been made. Before this period, the principal, so far as I have been able to observe, the only taxes which, in order to pay the interest of a debt, had been imposed for perpetuity, were those for paying the interest of the money which had been advanced to the government by the bank and East India Company, and of what it was expected would be advanced, but which was never advanced by a projected land bank. The bank fund at this time amounted to three million three hundred and seventy five thousand twenty seven pounds seventeen shillings ten and a half pence, for which was paid an annuity or interest of two hundred and six thousand five hundred and one pounds fifteen shillings five pence. The East India fund amounted to three million two hundred thousand pounds, for which was paid an annuity or interest of one hundred and sixty thousand pounds, the bank fund being at six per cent the East India Fund at 5% interest. In 1715, by the 1st of George I, C12, the different taxes which had been mortgaged for paying the bank annuity, together with several others, which by this act were likewise rendered perpetual, were accumulated into one common fund, called the aggregate fund, which was charged not only with the payment of the bank annuity, but with several other annuities and burdens of different kinds. This fund was afterwards augmented by the third of George I, C8, and by the fifth of George I, C3, and the different duties which were then added to it were likewise rendered perpetual. In 1717, by the third of George I, C7, several other taxes were rendered perpetual, and accumulated into another common fund called the General Fund, for the payment of certain annuities, amounting in the whole to seven hundred and twenty four thousand eight hundred and forty nine pounds six shillings ten and a half pence. In consequence of those different acts, the greater part of the taxes, which before had been anticipated only for a short term of years, were rendered perpetual, as a fund for paying, not the capital, but the interest only of the money which had been borrowed upon them by different successive anticipations. Had money never been raised, but by anticipation, the course of a few years would have liberated the public revenue, without any other attention of government besides that of not overloading the fund, by charging it with more debt than it could pay within the limited term, and not of anticipating a second time before the expiration of the first anticipation. But the greater part of European governments have been incapable of those attentions. They have frequently overloaded the fund, even upon the first anticipation and when this happened not to be the case, they have generally taken care to overload it by anticipating a second and a third time before the expiration of the first anticipation. The fund becoming in this manner altogether insufficient for paying both principal and interest of the money borrowed upon it, it became necessary to charge it with the interest only, or a perpetual annuity equal to the interest, 
and such improvident anticipations necessarily gave birth to the more ruinous practice of perpetual funding but though this practice necessarily puts off the liberation of the public revenue from a fixed period to one so indefinite that it is not very likely ever to arrive yet as a greater sum can in all cases be raised by this new practice than by the old one of anticipation the former when men have once become familiar with it has in the great exigencies of the state been universally preferred to the latter to relieve the present exigency is always the object which principally interests those immediately concerned in the administration of public affairs the future liberation of the public revenue they leave to the care of posterity during the reign of queen anne the market rate of interest had fallen from six to five per cent and in the twelfth year of her reign five per cent was declared to be the highest rate which could lawfully be taken for money borrowed upon private security soon after the greater part of the temporary taxes of great britain had been rendered perpetual and distributed into the aggregate south sea and general funds the creditors of the public like those of private persons were induced to accept of five per cent for the interest of their money which occasioned a saving of one per cent upon the capital of the greater part of the debts which had been thus funded for perpetuity or of one-sixth of the greater part of the annuities which were paid out of the three great funds above mentioned this saving left a considerable surplus in the produce of the different taxes which had been accumulated into those funds over and above what was necessary for paying the annuities which were now charged upon them and laid the foundation of what has since been called the sinking fund in seventeen seventeen it amounted to five hundred and twenty three thousand four hundred and fifty four pounds seven shillings seven and a half pence in seventeen twenty seven the interest of the greater part of the public debts was still further reduced to four per cent and in seventeen fifty three and seventeen fifty seven to three and a half and three per cent which reductions still further augmented the sinking fund a sinking fund though instituted for the payment of old facilitates very much the contracting of new debts it is a subsidiary fund always at hand to be mortgaged in aid of any other doubtful fund upon which money is proposed to be raised in any exigency of the state whether the sinking fund of great britain has been more frequently applied to the one or to the other of those two purposes will sufficiently appear by and by besides those two methods of borrowing by anticipations and by a perpetual funding there are two other methods which hold a sort of middle place between them these are that of borrowing upon annuities for terms of years and that of borrowing upon annuities for lives during the reigns of king william and queen anne large sums were frequently borrowed upon annuities for terms of years which were sometimes longer and sometimes shorter in sixteen ninety five an act was passed for borrowing one million upon an annuity of fourteen per cent or one hundred and forty thousand pounds a year for sixteen years in sixteen ninety one an act was passed for borrowing a million upon annuities for lives upon terms which in the present times would appear very advantageous but the subscription was not filled up in the following year the deficiency was made good by borrowing upon annuities for lives at fourteen per cent or a little more than seven years purchase in sixteen ninety five the persons who had purchased those annuities were allowed to exchange them for others of ninety-six years upon paying into the exchequer sixty-three pounds in the hundred 
that is, the difference between 14% for life and 14% for 96 years, was sold for 63 pounds, or for four and a half years' purchase. Such was the supposed instability of government that even these terms procured few purchasers. In the reign of Queen Anne, money was, upon different occasions, borrowed both upon annuities for lives and upon annuities for terms of 32, of 89, of 98, and of 99 years. In 1719, the proprietors of the annuities for 32 years were induced to accept, in lieu of them, South Sea stock to the amount of eleven and a half years' purchase of the annuities, together with an additional quantity of stock equal to the arrears which happened then to be due upon them. In 1720, the greater part of the other annuities for terms of years, both long and short, were subscribed into the same fund. The long annuities at that time amounted to six hundred and sixty six thousand eight hundred and twenty one pounds eight shillings three and a half pence a year on the fifth of january seventeen seventy five the remainder of them or what was not subscribed at that time amounted only to one hundred and thirty six thousand four hundred and fifty three pounds twelve shillings eight pence during the two wars which began in seventeen thirty nine and in seventeen fifty five little money was borrowed either upon annuities for terms of years or upon those for lives. An annuity for ninety-eight or ninety-nine years, however, is worth nearly as much as a perpetuity, and should therefore, one might think, be a fund for borrowing nearly as much. But those who, in order to make family settlements, and to provide for remote futurity, buy into the public stocks, would not care to purchase into one of which the value was continually diminishing, and such people make a very considerable proportion both of the proprietors and purchasers of stock. An annuity for a long term of years, therefore, though its intrinsic value may be very nearly the same with that of a perpetual annuity, will not find nearly the same number of purchasers. The subscribers to a new loan, who mean generally to sell their subscription as soon as possible, prefer greatly a perpetual annuity, redeemable by Parliament, to an irredeemable annuity, for a long term of years, of only equal amount. The value of the former may be supposed always the same, or very nearly the same, and it makes, therefore, a more convenient transferable stock than the latter. During the last two mentioned wars, annuities, either for terms of years or for lives, were seldom granted but as premiums to the subscribers of a new loan, over and above the redeemable annuity or interest, upon the credit of which the loan was supposed to be made. They were granted, not as the proper fund upon which the money was borrowed, but as an additional encouragement to the lender. Annuities for lives have occasionally been granted in two different ways, either upon separate lives or upon lots of lives which, in French, are called tontines, from the name of their inventor. When annuities are granted upon separate lives, the death of every individual annuitant disburdens the public revenue so far as it was affected by his annuity. When annuities are granted upon tontines, the liberation of the public revenue does not commence till the death of all the annuitants comprehended in one lot, which may sometimes consist of twenty or thirty persons, of whom the survivors succeed to the annuities of all those who die before them, the last survivor succeeding to the annuities of the whole lot. Upon the same revenue, more money can always be raised by tontines than by annuities for separate lives. An annuity, with a right of survivorship, is really worth more than an equal annuity for a separate life, 
and from the confidence which every man naturally has in his own good fortune the principle upon which is founded the success of all lotteries such an annuity generally sells for something more than it is worth in countries where it is usual for government to raise money by granting annuities tontines are upon this account generally preferred to annuities for separate lives the expedient which will raise most money is almost always preferred to that which is likely to bring about in the speediest manner the liberation of the public revenue in france a much greater proportion of the public debts consists in annuities for lives than in england according to a memoir presented by the parliament of bordeaux to the king in seventeen sixty four the whole public debt of france is estimated at twenty four hundred millions of livres of which the capital for which annuities for lives had been granted is supposed to amount to three hundred millions the eighth part of the whole public debt the annuities themselves are computed to amount to thirty millions a year the fourth part of one hundred and twenty millions the supposed interest of that whole debt these estimations i know very well are not exact but having been presented by so very respectable a body as approximations to the truth they may i apprehend be considered as such it is not the different degrees of anxiety in the two governments of france and england for the liberation of the public revenue which occasions this difference in their respective modes of borrowing it arises altogether from the different views and interests of the lenders in england the seat of government being in the greatest mercantile city in the world the merchants are generally the people who advance money to government by advancing it they do not mean to diminish but on the contrary to increase their mercantile capitals and unless they expected to sell with some profit their share in the subscription for a new loan they never would subscribe but if by advancing their money they were to purchase instead of perpetual annuities annuities for lives only whether their own or those of other people they would not always be so likely to sell them with a profit annuities upon their own lives they would always sell with loss because no man will give for an annuity upon the life of another whose age and state of health are nearly the same with his own the same price which he would give for one upon his own an annuity upon the life of a third person indeed is no doubt of equal value to the buyer and the seller but its real value begins to diminish from the moment it is granted and continues to do so more and more as long as it subsists it can never therefore make so convenient a transferable stock as a perpetual annuity of which the real value may be supposed always the same or very nearly the same in france the seat of government not being in a great mercantile city merchants do not make so great a proportion of the people who advance money to government the people concerned in the finances the farmers general the receivers of the taxes which are not in farm the court bankers etc make the greater part of those who advance their money in all public exigencies such people are commonly men of mean birth but of great wealth and frequently of great pride they are too proud to marry their equals and women of quality disdain to marry them they frequently resolve therefore to live bachelors and having neither any families of their own nor much regard for those of their relations whom they are not always very fond of acknowledging they desire only to live in splendor during their own time and are not unwilling that their fortune should end with themselves the number of rich people besides who are either averse to marry or whose condition of life renders it either improper or inconvenient for them to do so is much greater in france than in england 
To such people, who have little or no care for posterity, nothing can be more convenient than to exchange their capital for a revenue which is to last just as long and no longer than they wish it to do. The ordinary expense of the greater part of modern governments, in time of peace, being equal or nearly equal to their ordinary revenue, when war comes, they are both unwilling and unable to increase their revenue in proportion to the increase of their expense. They are unwilling, for fear of offending the people, who, by so great and so sudden an increase of taxes, would soon be disgusted with the war, and they are unable, from not well knowing what taxes would be sufficient to produce the revenue wanted. The facility of borrowing delivers them from this embarrassment, which this fear and inability would otherwise occasion. By means of borrowing, they are enabled, with a very moderate increase of taxes, to raise from year to year money sufficient for carrying on the war, and by the practice of perpetual funding, they are enabled, with the smallest possible increase of taxes, to raise annually the largest possible sum of money. In great empires, the people who live in the capital and in the provinces remote from the scene of action feel, many of them, scarce any inconveniency from the war, but enjoy at their ease the amusement of reading in the newspapers the exploits of their own fleets and armies. To them, this amusement compensates the small difference between the taxes which they pay on account of the war and those which they had been accustomed to pay in time of peace. They are commonly dissatisfied with the return of peace, which puts an end to their amusement, and to a thousand visionary hopes of conquest and national glory, from a longer continuance of the war. The return of peace, indeed, seldom relieves them from the greater part of the taxes imposed during the war. These are mortgaged for the interest of the debt contracted, in order to carry it on. If, over and above paying the interest of this debt, and defraying the ordinary expense of government, the old revenue, together with the new taxes, produce some surplus revenue, it may, perhaps, be converted into a sinking fund for paying off the debt. But, in the first place, this sinking fund, even supposing it should be applied to no other purpose, is generally altogether inadequate for paying, in the course of any period during which it can reasonably be expected that peace should continue, the whole debt contracted during the war, and, in the second place, this fund is almost always applied to other purposes. The new taxes were imposed for the sole purpose of paying the interest of the money borrowed upon them. If they produce more, it is generally something which was neither intended nor expected, and is therefore seldom very considerable. Sinking funds have generally arisen not so much from any surplus of the taxes which was over and above what was necessary for paying the interest or annuity originally charged upon them, as from a subsequent reduction of that interest, that of Holland in 1655, and that of the ecclesiastical state in 1685, were both formed in this manner. Hence the usual insufficiency of such funds. During the most profound peace, various events occur, which require an extraordinary expense, and government finds it always more convenient to defray this expense by misapplying the sinking fund than by imposing a new tax. Every new tax is immediately felt more or less by the people. It occasions always some murmur and meets with some opposition. The more taxes may have been multiplied, the higher they may have been raised upon every different subject of taxation, the more loudly the people complain of every new tax, 
the more difficult it becomes to either to find out new subjects of taxation or to raise much higher the taxes already imposed upon the old a momentary suspension of the payment of debt is not immediately felt by the people and occasions neither murmur nor complaint to borrow of the sinking fund is always an obvious and easy expedient for getting out of the present difficulty the more the public debts may have been accumulated the more necessary it may have become to study to reduce them the more dangerous the more ruinous it may be to misapply any part of the sinking fund the less likely is the public debt to be reduced to any considerable degree the more likely the more certainly is the sinking fund to be misapplied towards defraying all the extraordinary expenses which occur in time of peace when a nation is already overburdened with taxes nothing but the necessities of a new war nothing but either the animosity of national vengeance or the anxiety for national security can induce the people to submit with tolerable patience to a new tax hence the usual misapplication of the sinking fund end of book five chapter three part a